Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, hey, good morning, Mercy family. Man, I get to start uh, my time with you this morning with some really exciting news. Uh, For some of you know this, we have been searching at Mercy Church for a a director for our student ministry for about two years now. That's a, a director of our ministry to middle and high school students and their families. Um, the search has been one of the longest I've ever been a part of, and that's very intentional because we believe this is such a crucial time in someone's life when it comes to their relationship with God and establishing the, the patterns and disciplines of the faith that will carry them through the rest of their life. So we've had a pretty long search in that regard, y'all. The, um, the stats are pretty overwhelming. I mean, right now, two-thirds of American adults that are Christians— two-thirds of them say that they gave their lives to Christ before they were 18 years old, right? Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, people don't come to faith after 18. Of course, Mercy Church is one story after another, the grace of God in that regard. Our college ministry has seen 15 students come to Christ just this semester, so we know that. But it does let us know that this is a really important time. And Mercy Church is already a church that, you know, I can tell, really values student ministry. I can tell that because we've got members of our church who are serving in our Sunday morning Bible studies for middle and high school students at both Providence Road and our Independence Campus. I know that because we have several members who work full-time um, on campus as high school ministers through organizations like Young Life. And so what we've been looking for is a, a director, someone who can kind of fan the flame that God has already lit here in our church for um, ministry to middle and high school students and their families. Well, I am thrilled to tell you that our search is now over. Uh, We recently hired our first uh, director of student ministry, and I'm going to bring them up here. So will you join me in welcoming to the stage our first student director, Alan Warokio and his family. Both campuses, let's celebrate. God has provided. So I want, you to, I want you to meet the whole Warokio family. This is Alan, this, hey, yeah. This is Alan and his wife, Malin. Um, this is their three little ones, Anaya. This is Zeke and Ezra. So we are um, so thankful to have them. Alan is um, from Kenya originally um, and met his wife, Malin, who is from West Texas, uh, West Texas gave us the great gift of Pastor Richard Barnes, and so it just keeps on giving, and we're very grateful for it. Um, they come to us from just outside of Dallas, Texas, where Alan was serving as a student pastor for the past couple of years, um, and we are just, we're thrilled to have him here. He's going to be our director of student ministry, um, and he is as joyful as his little ones act. I promise you, big personality that we're so thrilled to have. Um, so, man, we are, we're just so excited for the whole family. My big thing for you guys, my big ask, is you know what it's like to be new in town, 
So I want you to fill up their inbox, their phones, everything else, um, help them feel at home here, get to know them and welcome them over the coming weeks as they look to, to plug in here and begin doing ministry, okay? I'm going to pray over them uh, and then we'll carry on with our service. We join me in praying for them? Lord, thank you so much for your kindness uh, to bring this family, uh, to bring this man to us who we believe you have called uh, to begin this ministry, to, to carry this ministry to the next steps. God, we ask for a harvest of students and their families. We believe that that's something you want to do through this church. We've seen you setting things up in that regard. And so now, Lord, we ask your blessing on Alan. We ask for favor on him uh, with local schools uh, and with local ministries. God, we ask that you would bless him and his work here. God, we ask that you would protect our family. Would this season in the life of their family be the one where they've drawn closer to you, more closer to you than ever before. God, we love you. We praise you for how faithful you are and the work that you have already prepared. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Yeah. It's easy. <laughs> All right. Well, if you've got your Bible, get that out and make your way over to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. This month, we reserve for what we call Advent because it's, it's a really big deal for Christians to sit down and just consider for a while the coming of Christ and all of its implications for us. That's why we take a whole month every year to talk about it. Today, we're going to look at one of the most enduring yet peculiar symbols of Christmas. We are going to look at the story of the wise men. Now, if you grew up in a church setting like I grew up in, uh, the wise men were a part of every nativity scene, toy, or live, right? In fact, you knew if you had a major league nati live nativity, if you had wise men and what? There was, the, the, of course, their camel. And if you had a live camel, that meant you were the real deal, big deal, right? Um, my question, of course, is why does Matthew include this in here? Not the camels, he actually didn't even talk about the camels, but why does he include the wise men? I mean, out of all the stuff that the gospel authors had to pull from, why does Matthew put this in there? I think about, he didn't give us anything about like Jesus' grandparents, you know, coming for Christmas to tell Mary and Joseph how they should be raising their kids and tell them how they really are, you know, you get nothing. No, we get these travelers from the East. Why? Well, for one thing, it's because it happened. And Matthew and the gospel writers are in the business of telling us what really happened, right? But for another, there's something uniquely revealing in the story about who Jesus is, about his message and what his message and ministry are all about. Y'all, just, just, just a reminder, nothing in the Bible is ever filler, all right? Nothing is just there for your entertainment. If it's in here, it really matters, not just then, but now. In fact, what we're going to see in this short account is some very different responses to Jesus. And that's the point of the Gospels, to announce who Jesus is and then call you to respond. That's what today is going to be all about. We're going to walk through the passage that you just heard read, and we're going to see responses to Jesus. What we see is we see these wise men searching for God, and then they finally find him. And listen, the main point of today is really a question for each of us to consider. In your search for God, what will you do when you find him? 
In your search for God, what will you do when you find him? We're going to see a few different reactions as we go through this. We'll just walk through this passage and then see a couple of different ways that people respond. All right, here's verse one again for us. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Okay, a couple of things, make sure we're all on the same page. First, you notice about these wise men, there's no count of three in here, all right? Now, that doesn't mean you go home and trash your nativity set, all right? But it's just, I want you to be aware, there's probably about, most scholars will say somewhere around 12 to 15 wise men who are coming, and they all have their envoy with them, which means you probably got a, a whole group of about 60 plus that are coming into town, okay? Second, who were they? They were from the east. Most likely, this means they were from Babylon, and when it says wise men, a word there would be magi, maybe your translation uses. You need to think of like a sorcerer or even a better description for us to make sense of it would be an astronomer. Trained in astronomy and prominent in their country because of their ability to interpret meaning through the shiftings and movings of the heavenly bodies. Were they important? Yes, very much so. Were they we three kings? No, they weren't kings, right? But they were important in their day. Now, let me give you a really cool connection to show you how the whole Bible tells one story. We've been talking, we talk about this a pretty good amount, right? The whole Bible is one narrative arc. It has its pinnacle in the arrival of Christ as we're looking at in the gospel message. But listen to this. There's a book in the Old Testament called Daniel. And it's about a guy named Daniel. That's where it gets his name, okay? Daniel was Jewish, but he got carried off into captivity in a place called Babylon, well, in Babylon, God gives Daniel special wisdom, special ability. He rises up to this place of real power and prominence. He stays there through about the entire captivity. He stays there through the reign of three different kings, maybe more, through the whole exile. And Daniel had authority, this is what's so cool, over the magi, over the sorcerers. And here's what he did. He taught them the promises of God that God gave to the Jewish people. One of which was Numbers 24, 17, that says a star is gonna come out of Jacob, a scepter is gonna rise out of Israel. Hundreds of years later, the Magi in Babylon were looking for a couple of things. They were waiting on a star to rise that would announce the future king of Israel. That's why they say, where is the king? Right, because they're looking for the one that Daniel a long time ago told them to look for. The whole Bible tells one beautiful story. And it's all about the coming of Christ that we celebrate here at Christmas. Verse three, when, Car when uh, Carid, King Herod, that's, that's his email address, Carid at. Um, no, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Of course he was disturbed, right? When someone else comes to the palace and asks where the king is, it's going to alarm the one currently sitting on the throne. Right, Herod is Herod the Great. His greatness is not a good great though. It's a bad great. He's a tyrant. He was put in charge by the Romans to preside over this area, which included presiding over the Jews in this area. But, and Herod knows this, he's not the rightful king of the Jews. He has usurped the throne. And because he's trying to hang on to power that isn't rightfully his, he always feels threatened. That's how that always works and his threat meter hits a 10 
when these guys show up and start talking about where the real king is. So verse four, he assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asks them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, they, then right here, Matthew leans in and makes sure that we hear from the prophet, right? From Micah, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod's not a dumb tyrant, not being Jewish. He doesn't know the Jewish prophecies, so he asks the Jewish leaders where this Christ, this anointed one, is supposed to be born. They pull directly from Micah to show where he's supposed to come from because, again, the Bible's telling one big story. This is one of hundreds. This little excerpt we got right there in verse 6, one of hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, and Jesus fulfills every single one of them. You understand how the chances are like infinitesimally small that Jesus would do that. Think of it, there, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. If you just take the most obvious, glaring, clear ones that come out and, and get repeated and everything else, there are 17 of those. The odds of one person fulfilling just those 17 prophecies is one in 480 with 31 zeros after it. In fact, I want to show you that. Uh, make sure you see it up on the screen. Just it. And for the way, maybe a way to describe it, if we were to take the surface of planet Earth and divide it up into square inches, all right, and I painted one of those square inches of all of planet Earth red, paint just one of them red, just take one of the squares on my shirt, put it down there, and it's red. I blindfold you and say, okay, go find the square. That's the chances of you finding that square inch. That's the chances that we're talking about in one in 17. Listen, some of you math geeks, just the math alone should be staggering enough to make you investigate the claims of Jesus. Verse seven, then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Now, I can ask you what I ask my kids when we read this account at the dinner table. Do you think Herod actually wanted to go worship Jesus? And they will say, no. What do you think you want to do? Kill him. That's right. <laughs> on to verse nine. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star. They had seen it, it's rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Now, here's what I love about this. These guys were astronomers. And so God used the stars to point them to Jesus. We see God meeting them right where they are, using the heavenly bodies to direct those who are genuinely seeking him. This isn't God saying the new way to find Jesus is gonna be astronomy. No, it's him saying he's, he loves to meet people right where they are and lead them to Christ. And that's how he is with you and I. What you begin to realize is that in your search for God, he finds you long before you ever even search for him. Had a college student a couple years ago tell me, she, um, she was talking with a friend of hers, a college student was a member here, talking with a friend of hers, um, and the friend was saying, you know, I think I'm ready to know God. I think I wanna know God. I'm just not really sure how to go about all that. And so our college student here says, well, why don't you come to church with me? We'll see if we can figure that out. 
Okay, we'll do that. So it's in January. They come, they sit down um, in church. I get up on stage and I say, okay, guys, we're beginning a new series. It's called Knowing God. And the two friends look at each other like, uh, I think God might be saying something to you, right? God loves to meet people who genuinely seek them, loves to meet them right where they are. In fact, he'll even use less than good motives to bring people to himself. That's not the case with the wise men, but look, I know a guy who went to church because that was a great place to meet women. You can meet a good woman at church. Not a great motive, but he found Christ, right? Bad motivation, but God was gracious. I know people who've come to church because it was the right place to network. It was the culturally appropriate thing to do and a great place to network with other influencers in the city. Bad motivation, but they found Christ. God was gracious to them, gracious to the wise men, and will be gracious to you wherever you are coming from. That's why we keep talking about this invite to Christmas Eve in a couple of days, because that person you know, or that group of friends you know, who are far from God, but close to you. And God already knows exactly where they are, and it might be you that he's using to lead them right to Jesus. Verse 11, this is our verse, y'all. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is the verse I want you to latch onto. It announces two very powerful things about Jesus. First, listen, it tells you his kingdom is not of this world. This scene is so descriptive, so descriptive of the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. I mean, the young child receives the worship of the powerful. The wealthy are bowing down to the impoverished. In ancient times, think about the times, Ren. In ancient times, when the oldest son was the one that always got all the social status and all the wealth and the younger son and younger siblings really had no social status. How does God work? He works through Abel and not Cain. He works through Isaac, not Ishmael. He works through Jacob, not Esau. He works through Ephraim and not Manasseh. He works through David and not his older brothers. At a time where women were valued primarily for their beauty and their fertility, how does God work? God chooses older Sarah, not younger Hagar. He chooses Leah, not Rachel. The one Leah who is called unattractive, who Jacob doesn't love, that's who God chooses. He chooses Rebecca, who can't have children. He chooses Hannah, who can't have children. He chooses Samson's mother, who can't have children. He chooses Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, who can't have children. Why? Over and over. What's happening? God is saying, I'm going to choose Nazareth, not Jerusalem. I'm going to choose the girl that nobody wants. I'm going to choose the boy that everybody has forgotten. Why? Does God just love the underdog? No. He's telling us something very important about salvation itself. Every other religion, every other moral philosophy is going to tell you to summon up all your strength and live as you ought to live. That's why they appeal to the strong, to people who can pull themselves up. Only Jesus says, no, I've come for the weak. I've come for those who are ready to admit that they are weak and I will save them, not by what they do, not by their resume or their status. I will save them, not by what they do, but what I do for them. So if you feel unwanted, if you feel like the outsider, maybe even here at church, you feel like you're alone, feel like you're on the fringes, do you feel shame or guilt, like you're some kind of damaged goods? Do you feel like nobody sees you? 
I want you to hear the anthem of the upside down kingdom of God. God sees you, God wants you, and God loves you. And all those things that you might consider a weakness is what he will use to allow you to boast all the more in his strength. At the climax of his life, Jesus ascended not to a throne, but to a cross. His weakness really was our strength. His kingdom is not of this world. And if you try to make sense of the kingdom of God through the power structures of this world, you'll never be able to understand it. You don't go clean yourself up to get right with God. You don't try to impress God. You come to him however you are. You come to him dirty, broken, alone, just as you are, and receive the love of Christ. Our God is not looking for resumes. Our God is only looking for repentance. Come to him. Receive the love of Christ he offers you. His kingdom is not of this world. There's a second thing we see here with the wise men, and that's that he's worthy of our greatest treasure. The wise men give gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And oftentimes, uh, for people that are familiar with the Bible, they jump right to that and they start trying to analyze what those gifts specifically mean. There's plenty of speculation, and we could deep dive that another time. I want us to consider why they gave these treasures. I think this is big because, listen, there's no question that God calls us to give our treasure to him. Specifically, I'm talking about our finances, to his ministry, to his mission. I don't preach on this much, and honestly, I need to do a better job about that because Jesus talks about it a good bit. But what I see right here is the motivation that should come behind all our giving. The wise men gave their treasure to Jesus for one simple reason, because Jesus was worthy of their treasure. And my question is, do you believe he's worthy of your treasure? Here's why he's worthy. He's sovereign and he's good. All right, the wise men are clearly saying they're recognizing his sovereignty. He's the one who rules heaven and earth. He owns it all. So we give him treasure in honor of who he is. His sovereignty makes him worthy, but he's also good. The apostle Paul once asked the church in Corinth, to give to ministry needs to another local church down the road. And he said, listen, there's a need, guys, but you cannot give under compulsion. Well, Paul said, well, you can't, that means you can't give out of guilt, out of shame, out of fear, whatever else. In other words, none of those things can motivate you. You got to decide what to give in your heart because God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, the gospel is a message that God gave right? That's the message. God gave. He finally gave us a way to be reconciled to himself. God gave his son for us. And Paul says, we got to give him response to that. And what's so beautiful is that when we fix our eyes on Jesus, he does this wonderful, powerful work of loosening our grip on our stuff. As we tighten our grip on him, as Christ becomes our treasure, he satisfies the need that our soul's been looking for in treasure, right? He satisfies our need for security, for peace, for contentment. That's the things that we look to in treasure. And Christ says, no, I'm gonna satisfy you in a way that that never will be able to. This even changes the answer to the question, how much should I give? That question's usually the wrong question, right? In light of the great act of generosity of God towards us, in light of the surpassing worth of Christ, the question is not, how much should I give? How much do I get to give? That's the question. What do I get to give and get in on this? Look, y'all, this Christmas missions offering we're doing right now, it's just a case study in this. 
100% of what we give is actually going out, right? To empower us to take the gospel farther and faster to Charlotte and around the world. Today, we're taking up that offering. And yes, I believe you should give to it. Otherwise, I'd never ask that of you, but not under compulsion. You got to give cheerfully. Give out a delight that God has given his greatest gift to you in Christ. And he's now inviting you to give that hope to others in the world. And we do it joyfully and cheerfully. And listen to me. If you are not ready to give to a local church, you're not ready to give here, fine. Don't give here. All right? That's for the members, Mercy Church, we can do that. Don't give here. You just give somewhere. Give somewhere to the advancement of the gospel and see what God does in your heart as you loosen your grip on your stuff and tighten your grip on him. Giving is an access point into the joy of Christ. And church, the message we're trying to put forward here at Mercy is that Christ is worthy of our treasure because he's sovereign and because he's good. Verse 12, being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death. So that, because Matthew just keeps on reminding us that this is one big story. So that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt. I called my son. The story is so powerful because of the contrasting reactions to Jesus from Herod and the wise men. I think they're powerful examples of contrasting reactions that we see today by people when they discover Jesus. I told you the question today is when you find God, what will you do? How will you respond? I actually see three responses to Jesus in this story that I think are helpful for us. And that's, we're going to spend the rest of our time is analyzing this passage that we just walked through. I want to show you three responses and ask you, where are you in this? The first one I see is apathy. Apathy, because he's not the savior that we expected. You look back at verse three, you see Herod was troubled by the announcement. You see Jerusalem troubled, everyone troubled, and yet no one really knows the answer. That's why Herod has to assemble the priests. And yet after all of that, no one goes to Bethlehem except for the wise men. And the reason is almost nobody really cared. Why? See, the Jews were waiting on a Messiah who would come to deliver them politically, deliver them militarily, from their oppressors. Understandably, Herod being the tyrant that he was, the idea of worshiping a baby in a manger simply didn't fit their understanding of a Messiah. And that's still true today. A lot of people struggle to understand how a baby in a manger helps their real life, right? Christmas is just kind of more practically about giving gifts and spending time with family, right? If Jesus could pay my bills, Jesus could fix my dysfunctional family, right? Maybe I'd lean in. But as quaint as this story is, I don't see how a baby in a manger helps me. And what we've been saying all month is that Christmas is here to awaken the wonder of Christ to you, to show you that it is he alone who can actually do all of those things, but can do so much more. He can restore God to you. He can prepare you for death and the life to come. And he says there's something more important to you than stopping world hunger or fixing your family, and that's coming to know him in faith. Look, verse 13, look at this. He would leave to go to Egypt just like Moses. 
And like Moses' deliverance out of Egypt, out of slavery, Christ would deliver us out of the slavery that we are all victim to, slavery to sin and death. It's the slavery that Christ alone can deliver you from. Verse six, he's the ruler and the shepherd, the ruler of the universe, the only way to be saved. He's the only one that can shepherd your life in a way that you can finally have soul level satisfaction. The search for meaning, the search for purpose, the search for security. Y'all, it ends in Christ. This is why apathy is the one response you just cannot genuinely have towards Christ. You can reject him or you can accept him, but he leaves no room for you to ignore him because eternity hinges on how you respond to him. Here's the second response we see. Hostile rejection. We see him, we see Herod threatened by another king. Herod understood he didn't have the right to the throne. You know, he, he wasn't in the kingly line. He definitely wasn't a practicing Jew. And anytime someone has usurped authority, the most terrifying thing is for the one who has rightful authority to come back. That's what Herod is experiencing. If you're a student of world history, you know that um, when two parties are fighting one another, peace is achieved through one of three ways. There's either surrender, compromise, or death. Right? Surrender is where one person acknowledges that the other is the rightful ruler. Compromise, both parties kind of surrender a little bit and then peacefully learn to coexist with each other. If neither side backs down, one of the two must be eliminated. There's no other option. Listen, Christ does not surrender. Christ does not compromise. He is the rightful heir, and so Herod tried to kill him. Listen, Romans 8, 7 and 8 said every, says every single heart, human heart is hostile towards God. The human heart wants to be king. And someone else, Jesus, is saying that he's the rightful king over your life, not you. And inside every heart is a little King Herod that wants to rule and is hostile towards anything that threatens its sovereignty. This question, where is the true king? Y'all, you get that that is the most disturbing question that you can ask the human heart. And we put up all kinds of defenses in order to keep ourselves on the throne. You, sometimes, often, we put up religious defenses. By that, I mean we act good, we act moral, we bring God just enough into our lives that we can placate him, but still ha make sure that we're on the throne, right? We live morally, try and put God into our debt a little bit, but basically, we give him a corner of our kingdom to ensure that we're still the ones on the throne. That's one way we do it. There's another way that humans do it though, and that's just to reject God entirely, run entirely from him and live our own lives with no concern for God. Both are attempts at keeping God off the throne. Y'all, every, not just every um, non-Christian, every Christian struggles with this too. We say, yes, Jesus is on the throne, but we struggle with it. I mean, think about it. Why is it hard to pray? Because it's still hard even after our surrender, there's this residual hostility towards the one on the throne. There's this tugging in our hearts because we want to be the ones on the throne. We have to surrender to Christ, which leads us right to the third reaction we see, the third response. That's joyful acceptance. It's to seek God humbly and see Jesus for who he really is. Y'all, the wise men weren't the most biblically knowledgeable people in the story. That belonged to the priests. They weren't the most wealthy or powerful in the story. That belongs to Herod. Here's what they knew. 
There was a divine king who's worthy of worship and they were sincere in their quest to find him. If that's you today, like the wise men, recognize the gift that Christ is to you. They didn't worship him as the boy who would become king. They said, Where, where's the one who has been born king? How did they find Jesus? God used a star for them. God used angels to bring the shepherds to himself. You have so much more than either of they did. You have his word. Matthew laments throughout his gospel time and again how it seems like the Jews were missing the Messiah. They knew the word, but they were missing the Messiah while outsiders like the wise men who had far less actually found him. Church, don't miss Christ today. His Holy Spirit is working here and now, and maybe he's knocking, drawing you to faith. Don't resist him. Join the wise men instead and experience the joy of worshiping Christ. Verse 10 says they were filled with great joy at finding the king. Experience that joy. Join them in verse 11 and fall down and worship the king. This is how you know your search is genuine, by the way. Some people search for God kind of like a thief searches for a policeman. Right? It's like they want to know where he is so that they can go and run and hide and hang on to something that they know was never theirs to begin with anyways. Recognize that an honest search for God means that when you find him, you got to worship him. That's why these men of prominence are bowing to a two-year-old. They found God. And today, if you're here, so have you. Worship him today. I want to offer you kind of this, maybe in closing, a comfort and a challenge. Listen, the comfort is that nobody is too far gone. Nobody's too far gone. Whatever your background is, whatever your past mistakes are, your deep, dark secrets, I don't care if you have been on the paid staff of hell itself. If you repent and come to God through faith in Christ and what he's done for you, not only will he forgive you, listen, he loves, he delights to work through folks just like you. That's who he loves to work through in his upside down kingdom here on earth. And here's my challenge to you. You gotta give him everything. Now I'm not talking primarily even about finances right now. That's just a, a sliver of that. I'm talking about giving him everything, giving him your worship, putting everything on the table and saying, God, I give it all to you. I give my life to you because you are better than everything else. Y'all, the story of the New Testament is looking back at the resurrection of Christ, what he's done for us, and just saying over and over, Christ is better, Christ is better, Christ is better. All the temptations of the flesh, that residual hostility that wants pulling me back onto the throne, the anthem of scripture is saying, Christ is better, Christ is better. He loves you, he sees you, he wants you, he's better. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the hope of Christmas. Thank you for the joy that we have in Christ. For those who are in here seeking you, God, I ask that in your grace and kindness, you would help them to surrender. In fact, as you're praying right now, let me give you the chance to do that. 
maybe like the wise men, your search is over because today you found yourself in church. Maybe you weren't expecting that. Or maybe you've been in church a long time and you didn't realize, no, I need to surrender my life to Christ. He is worthy of everything. I've never given him everything. I've kept him in a corner of my life instead of giving him everything. Wherever you're coming from, I want you to tell him right now, God, I give you everything. I believe you came as my savior, not just the savior. I'm gonna make it personal. I believe you came for me. And so today I give you my life. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm done trying to do it on my own. I give it all to you. And then like the wise men, worship him. Maybe you even need to, in a posture, physical posture, kind of open your hands there. God, I give it all to you because you're worthy. You're worthy. God, you're worthy. And so we worship you. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the coming of Christ, for the hope of the world given to us. God, don't let us miss it. Pause our hearts, pause our minds. These last few moments we have together this morning, lift them up to see you for who you are. Help us to worship you. We love you. We praise you in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.